Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you this day for your goodness and for your kindness and for your love and for your grace. And Father, we pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful and glorious things in your beautiful word. We pray that what we know not, that you would teach us, and that what we have not, we pray that you would please give us, and that what we are not, O God, we pray that you'd please make us, all for the glory and the praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you and who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Well, what seems to be on everyone's heart and mind these days is death. Since the outset of the current pandemic, many of our thoughts and our plans and our preparations and our precautions and our conversations and even our prayers have been shrouded in the shadow of death. It's not that death suddenly became more sinister or more widespread. But it does seem that the present trial has produced, for many people in this country at least, a sobering and a startling acquaintance with what Scripture calls the last enemy. Century after century, the greatest philosophers of the world have pondered this great enemy. Plato himself once asked, Must not all things at last be swallowed up? In death. I wonder if the promises of eternal life sound otherworldly to you when face to face with something like COVID 19. I wonder if this bright Easter morning, if the bright hope of eternal life has been swallowed up. A friend of mine wrote these words a few years ago about death. Before you long for a life that's imperishable, you must accept that you are perishing along with everyone you care about. You must recognize that anything that you might accomplish or acquire in this world is already fading away. Only then will you crave the unfading glory of what Jesus has already accomplished and acquired for you. This morning, I want to persuade your hearts of one thing, namely this. Because your Savior is risen, your future won't end with a funeral, but with a feast without end. That's the bright hope for the future, for the believer, found in the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. And as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 25, let me briefly set the context. Isaiah tells the tale, really, of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man, in all its pomp and all its pride, is destined to fall. The lofty city of man shall be brought to ruin, but the city of God, the city of God dwells 
securely because in Zion, in the city of the king, in the Jerusalem to come, the Lord our God, he sits enthroned in majesty and not even death can haunt the city of God. In fact, in the city of God, we don't find funerals. We find a never-ending feast. We find the glorious feast of the risen Savior. That's what we find in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. And it's this passage that we're studying this morning, and this passage is placed in this prophetic judgment context where we find that the Lord God Almighty is bringing judgment on the city of man. And this coming judgment is described in detail in Isaiah chapter 24. But then we arrive in chapter 25, and amidst all this gloom and doom, there is an oasis of hope that springs forth from Isaiah's prophecy. And the Lord of hosts promises to bring a wonderful and glorious salvation to his people. So let's listen now to this glorious hope beginning in verse 6. This is what Scripture says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Brothers and sisters, Plato was wrong. All things will not be swallowed up by death. There is a day coming when death itself will be swallowed up because your Savior is risen. Your future won't end with a funeral, but with a feast without end. This morning, I want us to look at these few verses under three headings. Number one, I want us to consider the royal invitation. The royal invitation in verse 6. And number two, I want us to consider the regal celebration. The regal celebration in verses 7 and 8. And then number three, I want us to consider the remarkable salvation in verse 9. And my prayer is that the God of hope will fill each one of us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope until that day that is coming when all our shadows will flee away. Number one, let's consider the royal invitation in verse 6. What's on the royal invitation 
for this glorious feast of the Savior. I want you to imagine receiving an invitation in the mail to attend a royal banquet, to feast with a king. That's how verse 6 functions in this passage. Verse 6 is kind of like a royal announcement. It's a royal invitation to feast with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right at the end of Isaiah 24, in the last verse, we read that the Lord of hosts has come to reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and we're told that His glory will be before His elders. So picture this in your minds. The the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of the angelic armies, the king of all the forces of heaven. He has returned, as it were, from a battle. He's triumphant over his enemies, and he's entering into Zion, into his royal city, the city of the king. And his glory is arrayed as he sits enthroned in majesty. And in order to celebrate this victory, the king of kings, the Lord of hosts, announces a victory banquet, a victory feast. Look again at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Your Bible may say a banquet uh, of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. So let's, let's look at this verse and let's consider all of the details that would be on that royal invitation, okay? There's several details to notice. Number one, where is this feast going to be held? What's the location of the feast? Well, we're told right there in verse 6, on this mountain. Well, what mountain? Mount Zion. In the book of Isaiah, Mount Zion represents both the, the heavenly and the earthly Jerusalem. Uh, the city of David, the city of the king, the royal city. Mount Zion in Isaiah refers to both the, the, the earthly and the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the same mountain, Mount Zion is the same mountain uh, as Mount Moriah, where the Lord called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but then he instead provided a ram in the thicket. Mount Zion is the same mountain that King David sacrificed to end the plague on Israel after his sinful census. Mount Zion, of course, is the same mountain where the temple was located and where God's glory manifested itself on the earth. And brothers and sisters, Mount Zion is the location, the same mountain, where thousands of years later, many thousands of years later, after this prophecy was written down, that the Lord of hosts incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, would die on a bloody cross as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's the location of the feast, Mount Zion. Number two, think about who's who's running this feast, who's hosting this feast, who is the Lord of the feast, who's the identity of the one throwing this glorious party. Well, notice in verse 6, it's not an angel, it's not an archangel, it's not Isaiah, it's not any of the prophets, it's not any of the elders. 
the master of the feast, the one who's providing this lavish victory banquet, is the Lord of hosts himself. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast. So when you get your invitation in the mail, the person who's inviting you is the Lord of hosts, the one who is enthroned above the cherubim, the one who is our Redeemer, the one who is the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, and whose name is holy, the one of whom the angels declare in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of the feast. Now, who gets invited to this feast? What is the list of guests for this feast? Who gets invited? Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast, notice, for all peoples. This is a feast for all nations. It's a banquet for all peoples. So invitations went out to the whole world. This is a huge party. This isn't just a party for Israel. This is a party. It's a feast for the whole world. All nations will be blessed by the God of Abraham at this feast. Five times in these verses, the international and universal scope of God's lavish grace is emphasized. I'll just draw your attention to it briefly. Verse 6, a feast for all peoples. Verse 7, all peoples. Verse 7, all nations. Verse 8, all faces. Verse 8, all the earth. If you remember Isaiah's prophecy back in Isaiah chapter 2, there was a, a, a prophecy about how in the last days, Mount Zion, same location, is going to be lifted up and all the nations, all the nations of the earth are going to stream to Zion to be taught the Lord's ways because the word of the Lord is going to go out from Jerusalem. God's word goes out and the nations stream in. And in this passage, the banquet invitations as it were, have gone out, and all the nations are streaming to Mount Zion for the feast. This expansive list of guests sounds exactly like the way the Lord Jesus spoke about the coming feast in the kingdom of God as he as he spoke in the Gospels. You remember in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, listen to what Jesus says. He says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So brothers and sisters, this glorious kingdom banquet will include believers both Jews and Gentiles, believers from every tribe and nation and tongue. And if you're trusting in Christ this morning, 
you're guaranteed a place at the table. A place at the king's table is a majestic privilege, is it not? We ought to be astonishingly grateful at the mercy and kindness of our king to provide a seat for us at his table. You remember when King David provided a seat at his royal table for the lame man Melphibosheth. Remember, he was, he was of the, the house of Saul, and, and in his kindness, David provided a place at his table. He treated Mephibosheth like a son, and he sat at the king's table the rest of his days. And brothers and sisters, if you remember that story, Mephibosheth, when he found out that David invited him into his presence, he fell on his face because he was astonished at the king's kindness. And that's what we ought to do. We ought to be astonished in joy that God himself, the Lord of hosts, wants you and me to join him at his table of blessing. We sing about this sometimes. There's a, a great hymn written by Isaac Watts called How Sweet and Awful. And that word awful doesn't mean bad. It means full of awe. And there's a line in that hymn that says this, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why? was I a guest. We've got the list of guests. We've got the Lord of the Feast and the location. All of this, all of these details are on the invitation. But there's one last thing to notice in verse 6, and that is the lavishness of this feast. Many banquet invitations, if you get invited to a banquet or a party, uh, sometimes you have to indicate on the, uh, on, the, on the invitation, you know, are you going to be chicken or beef? You know, what do you want to eat? Well, um, for this menu at the Lord of Hosts banquet, there's absolutely no need to pick because there is plenty of food to go around. Um, look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of Hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So in the ancient world, a king would often hold a feast as a way of displaying his wealth and power. If you read in 1 Kings 10, you remember when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon in Jerusalem, she was staggered by what she saw. She saw his palace. She saw the food on his table and the seating of his officials and all the attending servants and the cupbearers and everything. And we're told in 1 Kings 10 that she was overwhelmed. Literally, she there, there was no more breath in her. The lavishness of King Solomon's royal banquet literally took her breath away. And brothers and sisters, 
There is one greater than Solomon who is here, and his feast makes Solomon's feast look as puny as a saltine cracker with a little cup of ginger ale. Isaiah's description of this feast is simply over the top. It's the best of the best, the best food, the best wine, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of the primest cuts of the choicest meat. There are vintage burgundy and filet mignons all around. I mean, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's feeding everybody the best. And the point, the point of this description of this glorious future feast in the kingdom of God, the point is to take your breath away. This is the greatest feast. It's the most glorious banquet ever provided in the history of the universe because it's spread by the Lord of hosts himself. And it's for all peoples and it's in Mount Zion, his holy hill. Now, brothers and sisters, this lavish feast that's overflowing with the best wine, it should sound like something that you've heard before in the Gospels. Do you not hear in this passage an echo of what our Lord Jesus did at the outset of his public ministry? You remember the very first miraculous sign that Jesus performed, the very first sign that both manifested his glory and pointed to his identity as the Lord of hosts incarnate. Do you remember what that miracle was? At the wedding in Cana, what did our Lord do? He changed the water into wine. And the wine that Jesus provided was the best of all. And we read in John 2.11 that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Brothers and sisters, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's connecting his identity and his mission to the Lord of the feast that's described in Isaiah 25. He's aligning his mission with this future glorious feast for all peoples. And by this festive sign, our Savior is announcing that the purpose of his coming is to provide eternal life an eternal life of unimaginable joy and blessing. Brothers and sisters, because your Savior is risen, you won't have a future that ends with a funeral, but with a feast without end. Now let's consider number two, the regal celebration, verses seven and eight. What's the occasion for this regal celebration? What could possibly cause such a lavish party? In verses 7 and 8, we discover the reason for this feast. We find out why the Lord is throwing such an amazing feast. 
And it's because of the Lord's triumphant victory over death itself. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Perhaps over this quarantine time, you've had some time to reminisce about joyful times in the past. Maybe you've recalled family vacations or surprise birthday parties, or maybe you've remembered the getaway trips you've had with your spouse. And as great as those experiences are, the common factor in all those joyful times is that each one of them eventually came to an end. You have to come back from vacation. Um, all, all of your friends eventually returned home after a surprise birthday party. You have to go back to work on Monday after that quick getaway. No party lasts forever. All feasts, all banquets eventually come to an end. Um, but even if you were the wealthiest person on earth, e- even if you had an immense uh, wealth and you could, you could put on a, a party the rest of your life, eventually that feast would come to an end because eventually you would die. You see, Isaiah describes in verse 7 a covering, a funeral veil, your Bible may say, that casts a shadow and is spread over all peoples and all nations. And the imagery that he uses here, it's like a corpse lying on the ground that's awaiting burial. And then lying on top of the corpse is a a burial shroud. And Isaiah depicts the funeral shroud covering the whole earth. And so no matter where you go on this planet, no matter where you go, you'll find that death is already there. Death is the universal enemy of all peoples. All of us are descended from one man, our father Adam, and all of us are subject to Adam's death penalty because in Adam, all of us sinned. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The wages of sin is death. And so death is pictured by Isaiah here as a kind of vicious tyrant, the most heartless, unfeeling ruler of all time. Death produces despair. We've all, every single one of us, has wept tears of anguish at the loss of a family member, the loss of of a child, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a close friend. We've all felt the helplessness of weeping at the grave of those whom we have held so dearly. Death is the author of that sorrow. And death also produces disgrace. We're not only saddened by death, but death is also inherently disgraceful. 
you see someone made in the image of God and they grow cold and they die and they're put in a coffin and they're buried in the earth. That's to see someone sown in dishonor. Someone who is sown in the ground in weakness. I remember R.C. Sproul many years ago before he went to be with the Lord. He said one time, I'm not afraid of death. I'm just afraid of dying. Bodies, aging, sickness, raging, weakness, pain, sorrow, and then the grave. But brothers and sisters, Isaiah describes a day coming when death, the great swallower, will be swallowed up. Verse 8, the Lord will swallow up death forever. Do you see why such a lavish feast is being held for all nations? The Lord God himself promises to defeat the great tyrant of death forever. He promises to swallow up death. Now, this is a strong verb. He's going to totally engulf death. He will totally overwhelm death, just like Pharaoh and his army were swallowed up in the Red Sea, just like Korah was swallowed up by the earth in his rebellion. The Lord of hosts promises to swallow up death forever. And that's what's being celebrated at this future feast. Death has finally been defeated through the risen victor himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when the risen Lord will cast death and Hades into the lake of fire. One day, brothers and sisters, one day death will die. And that's what's being celebrated, the death of death itself. The Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah 25.8 at the end of his glorious chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection of Christ. And he tells us that what will happen to believers in the resurrection of the dead because of the work of the risen Savior. Paul writes this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners because the wages of sin is death. He is the friend of sinners, and He went to the cross to die in the place of sinners like you and me. He died 2,000 years ago on a bloody cross, bearing our judgment and bearing the wrath of God for anyone who would ever turn and trust in Him. He died in our place for our sins, but three days later, the Son of God rose from the dead, and He says to us this day, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he who believes in me, 
will live even though he dies. You see, brothers and sisters, death has been decisively defeated through the resurrection of Christ, and therefore one day death will die. But look at verse 8 again. Do you notice Do you notice that there's not just the victory of death being vanquished? Notice the tender, loving heart of our Savior. Notice what He promises to do on that day. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. Isn't that glorious? The King of kings, the Lord of the feast, will stoop down and He will minister to His weeping people. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. This future feast, this vanquishing of death, will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. This will happen when God's kingdom has fully and finally come. And now, how do we know? How do we know that this will happen? What foundation does Isaiah base all of these future promises? He says at the very end, for the Lord has spoken. These promises are certain because they are the Word of God, a God who cannot lie. Now, brothers and sisters, as you look around this world that is so filled with death, as this virus is raging, you look at all the evidence to the contrary in this world, why would you believe that this feast will come to pass? Isaiah says, because the Lord has spoken these words. Let me ask you another question. Has the Lord spoken anything else in Isaiah that has come to pass? Here's a couple. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We know these are true, O Lord, because You have spoken them and they have come to pass. So brothers and sisters, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as it were, we are preparing for this future feast in the kingdom of God that we will celebrate with all believers from all times and from every tribe and nation and tongue. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until that day when He comes. And do you remember what Jesus told His disciples at the Last Supper? 
Matthew 26, 29, Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord of the feast, the Lord Jesus Christ, is waiting to feast with you in His Father's kingdom. Because your Savior is risen, your future won't end with a funeral, but with a feast without end. That brings us to our third and final point, the remarkable salvation. Look again at verse 9. How should we respond to all of this? Verse 9, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. There are three clear implications for us from these verses. How must we respond to such a remarkable salvation? Well, the first is this. The first is this. Number one, come to the Savior. Come to the Savior. Come to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and embrace Him. Embrace Him by faith alone. Verse 9 says that the feast at the feast on the last day, all of God's people will say, This is our God. So to have a seat at that feast in the life to come, you must know the Lord of the feast and you must be able to say, He is our God. That's what Isaiah 25.1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Children, I want you to listen to me carefully. Listen to me. You don't have to know a lot about the Savior in order to come to Him. You don't have to know a lot. You just need to know that you are a sinner and that Jesus delights to be the Savior of sinners. And the Savior is calling you to come to Him, to receive Him, to trust in Him. The risen Savior says to you, Come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The risen Savior says to you, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, and I will eat with him and he with me. Come to Him. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Receive Him. Turn from your sins and receive Him with the open hands of faith. And He will never cast you out. And He will never leave you nor forsake you. And nothing will ever be able to separate you from His unchanging love. So come to the Savior. Number two, we're told in this passage that we must wait for the Savior. Wait for the Savior. Twice we're told in this verse that God's people will say at the feast that they have been waiting for Him all of their days. 
we have waited for him that he might save us. So brothers and sisters, on that joyous day at the feast, it will have all been worth the wait. The first readers of the book of Isaiah were waiting for the Savior to come. You'll remember Simeon and and Anna in Luke chapter 1. They were waiting for the consolation and the redemption of Jerusalem. And those of us who live on this side of His first coming are waiting for His second coming in glory. And so the, the fundamental posture of the Christian life is one of waiting. And so right now, we, we still experience the pain and the tears of death. Our risen Savior has set us free from the slavery of the fear of death. Our risen Savior is the firstborn from the dead. And right now, if we are trusting in Him, if we are united to Him by faith, we have eternal life right now. But death hasn't yet been finally swallowed up. Christ is risen, but death still stalks the earth for now. Death has been defeated by the Savior, but death isn't dead yet. So we still face death in Christ, but we face death with a living hope because Jesus is alive. We face death waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who abolished death and who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we are in, we are in that Romans 8 tension. Creation groans and creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And so Isaiah wants us to know that as followers of the risen Lord, we must wait. But what does Isaiah tell us about waiting? What does he tell us about waiting? What does he mean when he says that we have waited for the Lord? Well, I read through Isaiah and here's a few things he says about waiting. And I think this will be helpful. What does it mean to wait on the Lord, our Savior? Well, waiting for the Savior means hoping in Him. Isaiah 8.17, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in Him. Waiting for the Savior means desiring Him. Isaiah 26.8, O Lord, we wait for You. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Waiting for the Savior means being blessed by Him. Isaiah 30.18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Waiting for the Savior means leaning on His saving arm. Isaiah 33, 2. O Lord, we wait for You. Be our arm every morning. Waiting for the Savior means being strengthened by Him. Isaiah 40, 31, They who wait for the Lord, He shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting for the Savior means never being put finally 
to shame. Isaiah 49, 23, You will know that I am the Lord, and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And waiting for the Savior means waiting on Him to act on our behalf. Isaiah 64, 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Brothers and sisters, a feast is coming because the Lord of the feast is coming. And Isaiah tells us that we must wait for Him. Thirdly and finally, as we close, Isaiah also tells us that we not only come to the Savior and wait on the Savior, but we must rejoice in the Savior. We must rejoice in the Savior. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. As followers of the risen Savior, we can rejoice now, even in the face of death. Your life is worth living now precisely because it's not your life at all. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and who gave Himself up for you. And He promises to be with you even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He has gone before you to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a feast for the world even now. And our risen King is coming again. And one day the eastern skies will explode with the glory of the returning King of Israel and the King of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and death will be swallowed up in his victory, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away, and the Lord God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and the feast of the King will begin. But until that glorious day, we rejoice in the Savior, in hope. And every time, every time we celebrate together, every time we feast together on this earth and we experience the real but the fleeting joy of the Lord in this life, we remember that these momentary joys are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we've not yet visited. They're but a taste. They're but a taste of the forever feast that is coming for all who know the Savior and for all who long for His appearing. A dear friend of mine, a man named Richard Sibbs, who lived 400 years ago, he preached nine sermons on these verses, and he wrote this, The seeds of joy 
are sown in tears in this world. But we know, we know, we shall reap a harvest of eternal joy in the world to come. For then God will spread a table for His people for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, rejoice today. Rejoice this morning, for He is risen. Our Lord is risen indeed. And because your Savior is risen, your future won't end with a funeral, but with a feast without end. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You from the bottom of our hearts for Your abounding and matchless love. You have given us Your all because you have given us your dearly beloved Son. Help us to treasure him. Help us to love him. Help us to adore him. And help us to follow him by faith. Help us to trust his promises and to hold fast to his word. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, help us to glorify him in this world as long as you give us breath. We ask this in expectation and hope of that future feast. And we pray, O Lord Jesus, come soon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.